You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. So today, we're talking about a really fun subject. Um, Israel, this is the title of my subject, Israel Covenant and Dispensationalism. I want to kind of move from my typical way of preaching or sharing a message to uh, kind of just some teaching today. So can you guys be students for me? Um, because I'm, I'm, teaching isn't my main gift, but sometimes I just feel like, hey, we have to make sure we have some right thinking around some things. Of course, that's my intention, every message. But this is a little bit different. I'm going to have to get into some details, into just some of the scripture around some things, and even some historical stuff in doctrine in the church to make sure we're understanding. So today... Um, there's a lot of stuff swirling around in the world because of what's going on in Israel. Uh, you know, we, we've seen this kind of situation take place in Israel in the past. Uh, it's not a new thing, honestly, for Israel to have enemies and to be at war, uh, to honestly be at constant conflict. I've been to Israel twice myself. Um, I friends with some folks uh, that run a Messianic congregation in Haifa, northern Israel. I've been in contact a little bit with them. And, uh, you know, so I've been there to experience just what it's like. And I'll just say this. I was surprised the first time I went there to have some small revelation of what it's like to live in a country where everybody outside of that country hates you. We don't get it. I still don't get it. Like, we live next to Canada, and Canada's not going to throw rockets at us today. And so there's this tension in the Middle East that I don't think, as Americans, that we just simply know how to wrap our mind around. It's, it's just really incomprehensible for us. And not only that, even the tension that I felt going there for a week is different than the tension of, of living there for 50 generations of your family and dealing with this kind of animosity between people groups. You know, one of my conversations there was actually with this uh, guy. He, it was in the old city of Jerusalem, and I was looking for jewelry uh, for, for my wife because there's actually this uh, some stones that are only present in Israel, and it was kind of this really neat-looking jewelry. And so I was talking to this just this guy who sells jewelry, and I was asking him about his life and asking about his family, and he was Muslim. And he, I said, how long have you been in Jerusalem? And he, he didn't even flinch. He said, 49 generations. I was like, wow, how did you answer that so fast? But for people in that region, it is so important, their heritage. And I talked to him, actually, because he was, such a, he was able to have such an open conversation. I talked to him, what is it like? So he lives in the old city of Jerusalem, like the original, the city that we see in the Bible. He lives in the Muslim section of that city, and there's a Jewish section, and there's a Christian section, there's an Orthodox section. They all kind of live segmented lives. But in there, to, to him, there's this place of, I've never known anything different. And so sometimes we can look at a situation from the outside, and this is one of my first kind of challenges to us as Americans and as Christians, is don't think you know what it's like to live there. Can we do that? Can we just choose to not think we know it all? I know we're Americans, and that's our, like, God-given right. That's called sarcasm. 
But the truth is we don't understand the situation. We can't possibly. We don't live there. We don't understand the tensions. You've got this one Muslim gentleman lived there for 49 generations. And then you've got the, the people of you know, Israel. You've got Jewish people who have been there forever and ever and ever. And some have been scattered and some have come back. And there's this tension in the world. And we're always trying to wrap our minds around, well, who are we supposed to support? And I kind of want to hit some thoughts about that today. Because I know that in the church right now, there's a lot of discussion around what, what, you know, supporting Israel and, you know, this is almost a holy war. I've heard people say that and I, I honestly, I'll just be honest, I cringe. Because it's not a holy war. I will just say that. That is biblically wrong perspective. Okay? And so we're going to get into some of these kind of thoughts today. I want to I first describe to you a teaching that's in the church called dispensationalism. So if you haven't heard this word, we're going to just talk about it real quickly. So the word dispensation in the dictionary means this. It's in your notes. Exemption from a rule or usual requirement. Now dispensationalism, that's kind of become this doctrine in the church in the last 150 years. Not the church wholly, but some in the church believe in this doctrine of dispensationalism. It's only, it's not very old, just so you know. It's only about 150 years old. And this idea, they've kind of taken the word dispensation, they've used it a little bit differently, and I, I think I put it in your notes too. Yeah, divine administration of a period of time, meaning that this, that there's some thinking in, in the church where God relates to humanity and the people of God in specific ways at different periods of time. And then he changes his relationship for another period of time. And it's specific to the people of God. And then there's a specific thought to the, to the non-people of God. The dispensation uh, people would also believe that there are two peoples of God at this point in history. There's Israel meaning still the Jewish people of God who have literally the blood in their veins of Jewish roots. And then there's the church, and that they're actually separate. And in the Bible, they would believe that God speaks specifically to Israel at times, and then he speaks specifically to the church at times, but that they are not synonymous. And I'm going to talk about why I believe that's wrong. <laughs> because I don't believe that God sees humanity in segments like we do. That's the first thing we have to wrap our mind around. God doesn't look at humanity and see us as Americans and see Israel's, Israel people as Israelites or Hebrew people or Jewish people. He doesn't see French people as just French people. He sees humanity as his children, his people. It's been that way since the beginning of time. You see, dispensationalism, and this is why I would kind of teach today that I don't believe in this doctrine in the church, and I think there is some error in it, and I want to talk about why it matters if we believe right around this. You know, sometimes we can look at doctrines and we can be like, I don't, I don't really care about that kind of argument or debate. I don't know why it affects my life. I'm going to talk about why this might affect your life and how we as people can act Unaccording to it or according to what God we what I would believe God really teaches us. So the first one is we have to go back to Genesis and understand that humanity is made in God's image, not a certain people group. 
That God looks at humanity, and when we see Jesus come on the scene and Jesus' own words, he says, when I am raised up, I will draw all men to myself, that he means all men. And when I say men, I mean humanity, not men as in, you know, male and female. I mean humanity. That God is drawing everyone to himself. And then, in fact, there's this ultimate plan where God has this, this thing that takes place in the Garden of Eden where we sin and we fall away. And then God's ultimate plan is restoration of humanity. It's not restoration of just a single people group or an ethnicity group or even just the church. Now, the church is his people, but his desire is that everyone becomes the church. That everyone becomes his ecclesia. That everyone becomes his called out ones. If you've been around in some of the teaching around ecclesia and the word that's, that God or that Jesus uses when he says the word church, it was not an organizational thought. It was simply a group of people who are called out. And the truth is, God is calling everyone out. Now, the tension is not everyone comes. Not everyone is going to respond to God's calling. And so we see this language in the scriptures where there's separation and you see it sometimes where it's wheat and chaff get separated and that at other times there's this spot where it says sheep and goats and there's this separation. And so we see that there's a separation that happens in humanity, but it's solely based on people's choice to follow God or not to follow him. To receive the gift of grace that Jesus has given or not receive the gift of grace. And what dispensationalism does is it actually adds kind of this odd third category to people who know God and people who don't know God. They create a whole category just for the Jewish people. And I would say that this is not right thinking. And so what's happened in the current day, in our current present situation, is that when Israel goes to war, everyone immediately goes to all this end times teaching. They start quoting scripture. They start saying, oh, this is, this is the sign of the end times. And I would just say this. You have to be so careful with that kind of language. Because here's the point. Everyone who's thought it was the end up till now has been wrong. Everyone. Israel's been at war many, 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 many times. And it wasn't the end then. And we're going to read actually... Two whole chapters together today, Matthew 24 and 25. And I'm going to kind of pull some things out of that in just a few minutes. But I wanted us to understand that sometimes doctrine can actually start to make its way in. And if we don't, certain doctrines can make its way in. And if we don't understand really what the Bible says and what Jesus teaches, we can begin to have kind of odd thoughts about things that aren't actually directed by the Bible or by Jesus' words. They're just directed by ideas that people came up with. Dispensationalism came in at the end of the 19th century. It really got popularized at the beginning of the 20th century through actually a specific Bible version that was put out. It's called the Schofield Reference Bible. 
and uh, a, a preacher by the name of Darby, kind of the one that was really propagating this, this new idea. Before that, there was a few moments in church history where someone kind of had some ideas along this line of what, well, what happens to the people of God as we know it from the Old Testament, meaning the Jewish people. Do, do they get saved? I mean, because there's all these prophetic words. There's all this promise in the Old Testament that speaks to Israel. But when you and I read it, what do we read? We don't read it about a specific people group. We read it about us. We, when, we, when I see a promise about God's redemption in Isaiah and all this stuff, I take it as, oh, this is a symbolistic idea of the people of God, and I am now the people of God. But some would read it as this very literal interpretation that it only means Israel. And so one of the things about dispensationalism is that they take a, an extremely uh, black and white literal interpretation of the Bible. And anyone I've ever met that does that can never do it fully. <laughs> if you try to take everything that the Bible says completely literally, it's nearly impossible to fulfill. In fact, what you find out is you try to end up living by the law again, which is what Jesus came to fulfill, so that we don't have to live under a law system. And you, and you really can't do it. You'll never live up to it. And so dispensationalism also has this whole belief system around the end times. In fact, you would be familiar with dispensationalism because you've probably heard of the book called Left Behind or the movie. Anybody seen the movies, Left Behind series? Okay, so listen, if you grew up, when I grew up, I was always afraid I was going to wake up one day and find neatly folded clothes of all the people who knew Jesus and I was going to get left behind. Everybody seen the movie? Come on, it's funny. Actually, I think the, the most recent one, when everybody disappeared in the movie, they were like the clothes were laid out as they were wearing them, like this perfectly laid out person. I'm like, really? Jesus takes people naked? That's weird. And so this pre-tribulation rapture, that's the technical language of it. This pre-tribulation rapture, because people go to Revelation and what we see in some of the prophetic stuff from Isaiah and Daniel and in Revelation, there's this kind of, you know, uh, timeline of events that most people would try to say, well, this is how we think it's going to look. And so one of the things in the timeline is called tribulation, this time period where the world is under this duress where the people of God are being persecuted and there's this tribulation that takes place. Well, when dispensationalism came into the church in the late 19th century, they started to say, oh, don't worry, church. You're going to get raptured before that happens. And rapture just means that you're going to get sucked away into heaven, whatever that looks like. Hopefully it's not naked. Um, there's this kind of odd idea. Now, there's a couple scriptures, and we're going to read them when we go through Matthew, that would even present the idea of rapture at all. And there's very few references at all to even get a theology where God somehow comes and sucks us away, but the earth keeps going on. Now, we believe that Jesus is going to return, and that when he does, there's going to be this incredible resurrection of people, and all the people that are, are his people, the church, are going to be kind of come unto him. There's going to be this separation that takes place. But some people believe, well, there's actually a rapture, meaning all the church disappears before this tribulation. So Jesus hasn't actually come back yet. He just takes the church away. And now this is actually a chance for God to deal with his real chosen people, Israel. That's why this whole 
theology is in there. That there's this time period where God needs to now deal with Israel, his chosen people again, to get them to understand actually who the Messiah is and all these kinds of things. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff to it. And so that's some of the beliefs that have been brought into the church. And I would say that actually, I, I know through a lot of conversations that people have this tendency to think that that's how it's going to go. I'll just say this, I don't think that's how it's going to go. Now, everything I offer to you today is not doctrine, it's opinion. And most things that people teach on the end times, let me just say this, it's opinion. You don't have to build your whole life of following Christ around what Revelation teaches or what Daniel says in the book of Daniel. The, the truth is it has an impact on our life, but sometimes this is where I would just want to speak a little bit about doctrine and talk, talk about how we need to be careful. You see, doctrine is man's attempt to box up God so that we can neatly and nicely understand him. And I'll just say this. <laughs> Good luck. Like, he's God. And the Bible teaches us an immense amount of things about who he is and what he's like and how much he loves us. And there's these kind of baseline things that we would call doctrines that I would say you never want us stray from. But then sometimes we try to, try to find every angle or aspect of God and call it a doctrine so that we can just immediately say, oh, I understand God completely. But the truth is that's a nonsensical idea. I cannot understand God fully. At least not on this side of heaven. I'll have an eternity to get to know him. But the truth is I am... And I'm pursuing the knowledge of God, meaning I'm pursuing an intimate understanding of him in a relationship. I can't have a mindset that just because someone taught me for five weeks maybe in a course about something, that I'm going to understand God fully. And so dispensationalism, I honestly believe it's just an attempt of ours to say, well, this is a, this is a complicated subject about the end times and about Israel and about the people of God and about the church. So let's just neatly box it up so that everyone stops asking questions just a bad idea. You know, questions aren't a bad thing, right? If you have questions about God, good. We should question things about God. We should try to understand more. Pursue those kinds of things. All right, I spent a lot of time setting this up. This is the struggle. To talk about a subject this big on a Sunday morning is honestly a little bit hard. So Romans 11, I want to just read this one scripture, because Romans 11 is a lot where um, dispensationalists would get their teaching from. There's a lot in there about God's chosen people, and there's some things. But there's this one scripture, Romans eleven seventeen, where Paul is writing, and he's saying a bunch of stuff about Israel and the people of God. But then he comes down to this, and there's this kind of metaphorical idea. And he says, And you Gentiles, who are branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. So now... You also receive the blessing that God has promised Abraham. So there's this kind of metaphorical picture that Paul is using about an olive tree that, that kind of the people of God are like an olive tree and the, the Jews are the people of God and the, 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 you know, of course the stump and the trunk is Jesus and God and, and all these branches are the people of God and that there's some people who are now rejecting God as the Jews, some of the Jews that were rejecting God. And so it says that those branches were broken off and that new branches, the Gentiles, were grafted into that place. And so he's actually, what he's doing is he's trying to teach the Romans, because this is a letter to the Romans, who were all Gentiles, that they have a place in the family of God just like the Jewish people do. 
Because at that time, there was still a lot of tension where the Jewish people who would come to faith in Jesus would just say, oh no, it's still just for us. We're still the extra, extra special people of God. Now you might have gotten salvation, but, but you're still not Jewish. And there was this constant kind of segregation teaching going on. And so he was saying, listen, there is something special about the Jewish people because God used them to display what he was like to the world for so long. But the reality is that some of them, their branches have been broken off and you've been put in the place and grafted in. And so really this is another kind of technical term and this is where I would land generally in how I believe about this theology. It's called covenant theology. It means that really from the beginning of time all the way through the end, God has a people. And it's almost as simple as that. That there's a continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. And God uses this word church, but the church isn't some replacement thing, because there's another theology out there called replacement theology, and I don't believe in that. But replacement theology means that the, the Jewish people are pushed aside and the church replaces them. I don't think that's true either. I think there's a continuity, meaning that God looks at humanity and he says, I'm going to restore you the best way that I can. I'm going to give you every option and every open door, and I'm going to sacrifice my own son. I'm going to go to the ends of the earth to give you the opportunity to be reconciled back into the family, back into the design that I've always had since the beginning of time. That's God's plan. And so there's a continuity from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament on the people of God. Now, we saw certain people of God that would have been kind of called out in that time, and that was Israel, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. But I love this. I love when you get to Matthew, and you see Matthew list the lineage of Jesus and where he comes from. That there are multiple, first off, women that are listed, which would never have been normal in a lineage, but, but that some of them women were Gentile women. I'm like, it just goes to show that God's plan never was just set on a certain ethnicity group, but it was really set on the heart of anybody who was willing to follow him. Even if you go to the Old Testament, some people struggle with this idea of, of there being, uh, you know, kind of these separate things. In the Old Testament, for the people of God, even in the wilderness, and then when they came into the promised land, the Hebrew people, there, were always, there was always an open door for Gentiles to become Jewish people. There was always an open door for them to actually become Israelites. The temple was designed with a Gentile court. And the reason it was designed even with a Gentile court was because in the teaching of the Old Testament, God made space for those who weren't necessarily the ethnicity that he was using at that time to display his wisdom and his kingdom to the world. In fact, I, I've done this teaching before. When Jesus comes in and he gets angry at the temple and it says he flips the tables over and a lot of people have thought, oh, he's mad because they're selling stuff in the church. I had someone even say, oh, you're selling all this merch in the church. Is Jesus going to come flip the tables? I'm like, no, I don't think so. Because really the point that Jesus was most angry about was not that they were selling something in the church. It was that they had actually taken up the entire Gentile court, filled it with merchant places, and there was now no place for the Gentiles to meet. And so they had actually changed the design of the temple to fulfill their merchant needs 
because they didn't they no longer cared to give the Gentiles a space. Now, if you're not if you're confused when I keep saying the word Gentiles, that simply means anyone that wasn't a Jew. And so the Gentiles actually had a place in the court, in the temple court, but they had crowded it out. And Jesus comes in and he flips the tables and he's angry. And what does he say? This is why we know I think this is the point that, God, that Jesus was angry about in the moment. He says, this was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. God's heart has always been for all people groups, for all nations. It has always been for humanity itself. But sometimes we, we, we grab a hold of this nation idea and we think that God kind of sees us almost in these nation groups and some are better than others or some are maybe more valued than others or some are maybe just more special than others. And I would just say that is a human-made thinking. It is not God. Now, we are absolutely blessed in the United States of America. More than most any nation in the entire world, probably in the history of the entire world, when it comes to possessions and money and those things. But we are not more special than any other country in the world in God's eyes. You know, I, I look at the, the map around Israel, and you've got Israel, and then you've got just above it Lebanon and Kind of in the top right-hand corner, you've got Syria that comes along its border, and you've got Jordan, and of course, you know, the Palestinian territory and the, all the disputedness of that. And you've got these countries that it's easy for us to villainize, but the truth is God's heart is for them just as much as it is for Israel. And that's a struggle for sometimes for us to grab hold of, because we can look at one country at times and see how much maybe further from God they look. But that's not how God sees it all. Because he's drawing everyone. And so there's this, this tension we have to live in. And as Christians, the first thing I want to say to you today is we can't get on this kind of horse where we're supporting only maybe one people group. The truth is we should be praying for every person involved. We should be praying for the Palestinians in that area. I mean, I, I've, I watch the news. I like the news. I read a lot about the news. The stuff that's happening there is horrendous. But guess, and, and I, and I want to say just to make sure you understand my heart, the things that Hamas did to Israel is horrendous. All of it is. But it's not, it's not this heart of God for one people group to be wiped out and one to survive. It's not. God is reaching for every person, and our heart should be for every person in the midst of these kinds of situations. I mean, the Bible literally teaches us to pray for Israel, but it also teaches us to pray for all nations, just from the statement I just made that Jesus said. What is this church called to be? A house of prayer for all nations. That we should be praying for every people group in every situation. Ephesians 2.19, just to kind of give you a little more, a few more scriptures to support this idea of continuity. It says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. 
Paul, he's, he keeps trying to level the playing field so that they understand there is not different equalities in the eyes of God. The only separation that we see throughout Scripture is those who follow him and those who do not. And really, God's whole mission is to try to get the ones that aren't following him to follow him. Galatians 3.29, it says, And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. Again, Paul, he's writing, he's talking about this dichotomy that's taken place or this segregation that's taken place and he's saying listen you are now the true children man because of Christ and there's a whole lot of teaching around Jesus being the son and the son of the promise that we see in the Old Testament and now that we're a part of the family of God because of what Jesus has done that we are blessed with all those promises this continuity takes place but here I want to jump now to Matthew 24 and I want to read through some of this because these are the kinds of scriptures Matthew 24, and I'm sorry that we're going to read so much because um, context is everything in the Bible. Taking one scripture out of a certain spot and like blanketly applying it to your life without understanding the full context is not really the right way to read the Bible. We have to understand context. And so sometimes when I want to even teach us something, I end up reading, I always read chapters before and a chapter after because I'm trying to understand what's the full picture of what was actually taking place and why did Jesus even want to voice his opinion in this moment in Matthew about these things? Not his opinion, it's truth, right? We have opinions, Jesus has truth. Um, Why is Jesus saying these things in this moment and what does it mean for us? And the context of the story always matters to us. So I want to read all of 24 and 25 because, honestly, I don't think we're supposed to read them separate. We're not supposed to have a a, a narrowed-in view of understanding them separate. So Matthew 24, let's jump there. If you guys have uh, Bibles, it's super helpful. If you have a phone, maybe they have all the scriptures because they're wonderful. So we're going to read Matthew 24. I'm reading out of the New Living. It says, As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings says, but he responded, do you see all these buildings? Now, this is actually just after Jesus came in. Um, this is just when he was criticizing a bunch of you know, religious leaders at the temple. So they're there and they're leaving. He says, but he responded, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth. They will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Now, I want to say something right now, and I want to be very careful to not destroy any kind of you know, way that you're thinking, but I want to challenge you. Okay, When we read the Bible, if we read it with extreme literalness, but then we actually study things, you'll find out it feels contradictory in some ways. Because let me tell you this. Jesus just made a statement. He said, not one stone will be left on top of another. I've been to Israel, I've been to the temple, and guess what? There are stones still, one on top of the other, that are from before Jesus' time. So did Jesus just lie? No. He's trying to make a point. This is is how we have to be a little careful with Scripture. We're looking at Jesus making a statement, but the truth is not every stone was kicked off the top of the other one. But that has nothing to do with the point Jesus is trying to make, right? 
He's trying to say these buildings aren't important. In fact, they had put all their faith in this building, in a temple, in a structure that held the presence of God. He was trying to say that thinking, that mindset will cease to exist because it's not nothing to do with buildings. So it didn't matter if one stone was left on top of the other. It matters what Jesus was trying to make them understand. These buildings mean nothing at the end of all this. Does that challenge you too much? I hope not. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will all this happen? So now they're like, wait, what? The temple's going to be destroyed? Everything's going to be gone when? (laughs) Of course, that's what we're still asking. What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Now, some of the translations there will say end of the age. So there's this period, like, what does that mean in the end of the world? Like, it's still the question that so many people are constantly pressed with, like, oh, is this the end? Is this the end? Is this the end? Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. So let's just, we hear this scripture a lot in this kind of period of time where Israel's at war and Russia and Ukraine are at war and the things that are happening around the earth. But let me, let me just say this. War has been happening a lot for a long time. It just doesn't happen to us as close as we notice. And when we do notice, as Americans, we tend to think immediately, oh, now it's the end. But for some people, their entire lives have been in war. You go to Africa. Most of the countries in Africa don't even know a decade without war. And so the idea of just wars and rumors of wars, it can't be how we make a decision that this is the end. But there's a piece in this scripture that really matters. How does it end? It says, but don't panic. This is an encouragement to you today. Don't panic. Don't panic. Things can look bad. Things can be bad. But you don't have to panic. It says, yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. You'll be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Like there's parts of this that I want us to pay more attention to than other parts, truthfully. We see this kind of prescriptive thing from Jesus of what it's going to look like near the end of the age and whatever that even means. But then there's these moments where he's encouraging us in the middle and he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. There's something that God wants us to endure in faith no matter what's happening in the world. It says the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. The day is coming when you see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration, standing in the holy place. There's a whole teaching on that in Daniel. I won't even go there today. 
Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down in the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return, even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. And it will never be so great again. Listen to that. Like, it's kind of scary scriptures, right? And, and really what he's trying to say in this moment is there's going to be this urgency to flee. <laughs> but he says there's, there will be no greater anguish than at any time since the world began. I just want to challenge the idea that currently we would even conceive that there's a greater anguish than any time the world has began. The truth is that's not the case. If you just look at history of the world, we are not in a place of greater anguish than ever, ever before. It's just not true. It's not accurate information. And so this is why I would even read this and just simply say, I don't think this is the end. I don't think that we're near it. I, don't, I always tell people, I don't plan on Jesus coming back for at least 100 plus years. I don't. I'm planning that we have work to do. That God's mission is still his mission. And that it isn't the end yet. Then he goes on, in fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen one, chosen ones. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this ahead of time. So someone tells you, look, the Messiah is out in the desert. Don't bother to go and look. Let me just say it this way. When you hear sensational preachers on TikTok and Facebook and Instagram reels, and they're trying to tell you the newest wonderful secret that only they know, and they're pointing to some place, I would say, don't go and look. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't get... Don't get sucked into this kind of sensational thinking. It's not, it's not what, where we're supposed to live. He says, oh, I lost my place. Oh, yeah, verse 27. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be the Son of Man, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of vultures shows there's a carcass nearby, so these signs will indicate the end is near. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will give no light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers in heavens will be shaken. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens. There will, there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I want to just stop real quick. Jesus' language here is meant to indicate one thing that it's going to be fairly obvious. That it's going to be pretty shockingly obvious to us that there's a calamity happening in the world greater than anything we've ever known. And I know that people are even saying that that is true about today. I would just say that's not true. I don't believe that we're in the midst of calamity unlike we've ever known. Why? Because I can still go to Walmart and buy my fruit roll-ups. I mean, it sounds like a joke, but the description that I see Jesus talking about means that 
it's like desperation has occurred. And not in one place, but everywhere. That the world is literally in a, such a state that it says, if God didn't shorten it, not one would survive. I mean, that's, that sounds like everywhere would be in this desperate, desperate place. We're not there. And that's a good thing. You can praise Jesus for that. And it says, let's, let's go on, verse 31, And he will send out his angels with a mighty blast of trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these signs, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. Again, this is why I would say, if this matters to any of you, I don't necessarily believe in this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. Because you see, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, who he called his ecclesia, his church. And we are the continuation of his ecclesia, his church. And he's saying that there will be an end to this calamity and tribulation that they experience. And then the end will actually be near. So we haven't even gone through many stages to even get to that part yet. But I do believe that the people of God will be here in the midst of it. And one of the reasons I believe that the people of God should be here in the midst of it is because we're the ones called to bring hope to people in the midst of it. That in the midst of hard times, we shouldn't be people that panic, like God, Jesus says, but we should be people who endure and give hope to people who don't have it. You know, sometimes I've, I've heard people read these scriptures, and there's one in here I'm going to get to, and it says, so be prepared at all times. And I think sometimes that we literally think that means we should just stockpile stuff in our basement. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about this preparation of heart so that we can be on mission for God at any time. So that we can be prepared to show the world what he's like. I have not enough time to finish this. It says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like in the days of Noah. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings. Right up to the time Noah entered his boat, people didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came. Two men, this is the rapture verse. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken. Two women will be grinding flour. One will be taken. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what, your day, what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time. For the Son of Man will come when least expected. So <laughs> I love the... The feeling of contrast here. And maybe you're not grasping it, but the whole beginning part of 24, Jesus is saying, listen, it's going to be obvious. You'll see all the signs. It's going to be really, you're going to know it. You're going to see it happening. You're going to understand when it's taking place. And then all of a sudden here he's going, you got to be ready because you're not going to know. Well, which one is it, Jesus? It's both. I don't know. The point is this that I take from the whole thing. Be ready. Be ready in your heart and in your life. Be ready in a way that no matter what is taking place, that we don't live in panic, we don't live in hopelessness. We don't have this kind of separated, hang on until the end comes mindset, but that we actually are ready for Jesus no matter what. 45, a faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. I think this is a clue for what we're supposed to do. That he gives us responsibility 
for feeding people. I think that's literal. I think that's spiritual. I think that's what, we, what he means when we feed people hope. We feed people the promises of God. But what if this, we're going to jump down because I'm going to skip some of this, sorry. Verse 20, or let's go to chapter 25. You guys okay? The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of this instead of reading. We see this kind of, kind of metaphorical story take place that wouldn't overly make sense to us, but the idea behind the story because they would have understood what bridegrooms and bridesmaids and these lamps would have represented in their society. It was to actually be ready to have enough in their lamp, enough oil to keep the light burning, waiting for the bridegroom to come, who is Jesus. And he's saying, basically, don't let your lamps run out. Don't, don't just kind of live too flippantly without the expectation that God could come back. So there's this place where we, we have to pay attention to the times, but we also have to understand that maybe we won't see it coming, so we have to have a ready heart. But then he's also saying that you should be expecting for him to come, but then also live like he's not coming back tomorrow. You appreciate the tension? This is the Bible. This is following God. It's not all simply black and white, boxed up into nice, neat doctrines. There's these tensions that we live in, this constant back and forth of going, okay, God, and, and where do you have me right now? And part of this is how do we live in the midst of those tensions without getting distracted? And if I could leave you with something today, it's this idea that it's easy for us to get distracted in Christianity by things that aren't as important as other things. So you've got Jesus giving us all this futuristic calamity vision and language, and then he gives this metaphorical thing about the bridesmaids. Then he goes into the parable of the three servants. And many of us know this, this parable just simply because we quote it a lot at funerals when we hear people say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. This, where you know they're given certain talents, right? And then whether they actually produced more from those talents. So there's this kind of like expectation that Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of God, in order for you to be ready, you have to do well with what God has given you means you can't squander what God's given you to do in this world. And in fact, that when you stand before the king, he says, well done. He doesn't say, good intentions. That there's something he's calling us to do, not just to, to think about. So let's jump down, because I want to get to a certain part here. Verse 31 of chapter 25. So he's given these two parables. And then he says this, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is the separation I talked about. He will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. This is an incredibly important verse. Okay. We talk about salvation. We talk about going to heaven. We talk about these things in Christianity. This is an incredibly important verse to us because we're about to see a qualification from Jesus' mouth of what it means for us to inherit the kingdom of heaven and even why we inherit the kingdom of heaven. So he's, he's saying some are going to be called sheep, some are going to be called goats. We're going to separate them, and the sheep are on my right hand. And now here's a, and so they're going to inherit this kingdom, 
But then listen to verse 35. This is an incredibly important qualifying scripture. For, whenever you hear, like just in the language of how things are, he's saying for, meaning that all of the things I just said are for a reason. And this is verse 35. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Okay. Let me just try to shrink this in for you. You see, Jesus spends... All of chapters 24 and most of 25, he's talking about the end of the world and kind of these big sensational thoughts. And we've created all these doctrines from them. But you see, Jesus used all of that language to build up to this point. See, it wasn't just to show us, hey, this is what the world's going to look like. He was building up to a point, And his whole point was this. Care for other people. Do it to the least of these. Because when you do it to them, then you've done it to me. And in fact, that is the qualifier of being my sheep. You want to be a goat? Care about yourself. And I don't mean greatest of all time. Okay, for you older people, goat, greatest, O, of, A, all, T, time. Sorry. <laughs> You didn't laugh. You were supposed to laugh louder, and I just think you didn't get it. <laughs> to be a sheep in the kingdom of God means that we lay our lives down for others. We're not supposed to be focused on the end of the world and when it's happening and all the things that are going to be hard. We're supposed to be focused on the people who need food and water and clothing and hope and something in their life that gives them actual abundant life, the promises that God has. This is what it means to actually be a follower of Christ, that we would actually care for the least of these. You want to know who the least of these are? The people who are least like you. That's the... That's really the teaching from Jesus. When, when Jesus teaches about the good Samaritan and the Jew on the side of the road, he was talking to them in this way. This is the person who's least like you. You see, it's easy for us to care for people who are like us. When you think like me, you look like me, you dress like me, you vote like me, you share the same memes as me, man, we're people. But what about everybody else who's not like you? That's what Jesus means when he says the least of these. Because really what he's, not, what he's not saying is that there's an actual equality difference in the world in his eyes. He's saying there's an equality difference in your eyes. And he's saying that the people you would deem less than yourself when you feed them, clothe them, show them hospitality, when you care for them, that is what Jesus is going to look at you one day when we stand before him and he's going to actually judge, and I don't like that word either, but he's going to actually judge if we did that or not. 
These scriptures drive me. It's honestly some of my sole motivation in life. I think about it all the time. Honestly, I think about it usually when I'm having a slightly bad attitude about being inconvenienced for others. Sorry, I'm a human too. When I'm in a hurry and someone stops to talk, and talk to me in Walmart and, and, I, and I have to end up sharing something with them or I feel like God prompting me to end up sharing something more with them and, I, and I'm half thinking about the fact that I need to get home because I'm tired and I had to just buy this one thing in Walmart and now I'm interrupted from my special life. And instead, I'm giving that time to that person, and I'm challenged because I have this fleshly side of me that wants life to be just about me. But then there's this other side of me that says, I have to do unto everyone like I'm doing it unto Jesus. That's God's heart. That's how he sees his people. That's how he wants us to act in this world. Then the king will turn to those on the... Actually, we don't need to read any more of this. We'll keep going because I'm already late. When you did to one of the least of these you were doing to me, why don't we stand this morning? The question I want to ask is this, just one today. Have we gotten distracted from being ready in the right way in our lives? Because the ready that we're supposed to be is ready to serve. Ready to love ready to show kindness and goodness to the people around us, ready to actually care for the least of these in this world. That's the ready I think Jesus is calling us to. And it's easy for us to get distracted and pulled into the sensational stuff that the news is always putting out there. And I just want to challenge us today as the church, as the people who are called out of this world to show the world what he's like. That we would actually endeavor to do that to the best of our ability. Who's the least of these in your life? Who are the people that you would tend to avoid or not have conversation with? Or maybe the people in your life that you would just look around and say, well, they're so far from God, it'd be impossible. But I'm telling you, unconditional love breaks down the greatest boundaries. The love that Jesus has shown us, breaks down the greatest boundaries. This is what I want to do. I just want to pray for you today as we end. I know this is a lot of information <laughs> and even a good challenge. But I'm praying that as a church and as the people of God, that we can be about the right things, that we can have the right mindset. So, Father, we just lift our hands to you today, God, in a sign of surrender. God, we lift our hearts to you today. And God, we say that we want to be exactly what you call us to be, God. We don't want to get distracted by things in this world that would maybe pull our attention from the more important things. And God, at the end of this whole dialogue between you and your disciples, you said, God, for, for if you would just do this unto the least of these, you've done it to me. God, let us be that kind of people. God, let us look at the world. God, let us look even beyond our nation's borders and not be one of judgment, but be one of care. God, be one of prayer. God, where we're lifting up the people of the world to you. God, where we're going out of our way in any way possible to love others. 
God, we thank you for what you've done in our lives. God, we thank you for what you've done in us. But God, we ask you to do the same thing through us in other people. God, that your immeasurable goodness and kindness would flow through us. That people would have hope. God, we thank you for what you're doing. God, I ask you to bless every person in this room, every person online today. God, let us go and just be a little more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.